Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Can I say it? I think I'm going to say it. I know most of you are listening to this podcast before Easter, in preparation for Easter Sunday, and it's still Lent, but I'm going to do it anyway. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. That has been the Easter greeting of the church for generations, going way back into the early church, as far as I'm aware, and it is our daily faith. I know the season of Lent has its purpose, and it's a good season in order to help us focus and reflect and and really see the depth of our sin again, as we can forget in day-to-day life. But every day is Easter. Christ is risen. He truly is. He has raised from death. He has left the tomb. He's not in it anymore. This is most certainly true. And because he lives, you live. Because he lives forever. Because death cannot conquer him any longer, you live forever. Death cannot conquer you any longer. This is who we are as Christians. This is our hope. Easter's coming, but Easter's already happened. Every day is Easter. Every day we celebrate that Christ has been raised from the dead, and today we do it in preparation for the Easter sunrise service in year A. Our scripture readings are the Old Testament text, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, through chapter 15, verse 1, and then the epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's verses 1 through 11. Now, we have had that reading before in the podcast, back in year B, so it'll actually be next year on Easter Day. So the Easter sunrise is what we're looking at now. The Easter day is the regular readings for Easter. Again, so next year, 1 Corinthians 15. But we had that two years ago already, so I'm going to just roll that epistle reading forward into this podcast episode. And then we have the gospel is from John chapter 20. It'll be verses 1 through 18. Now, just a quick review to set the stage for the Old Testament text. God's people of Israel, at about 70 people, a household of 70, moved down to the land of Egypt during those latter days of Joseph, well, during the latter years of Jacob's life. And we do learn in the book of Exodus that it is 430 years to the very day that they left Egypt. So they're there for a while, several generations. Now, they're not slaves that entire time. It's not 430 years of slavery in Egypt. I know some people often will view it that way in the Christian church. But we don't actually know how many of those years were enslavement. Because Exodus begins not exactly where Genesis leaves off. Exodus begins with a king who has not known Joseph. How many generations is that? Surely it's not a reference to the, the Pharaoh who was still on the throne at the time Joseph dies. It's probably not going to be a reference even to his son or his grandson, as they would have still been telling stories of how great Joseph was and what he had done in the land of Egypt. But at the same time, 
There is a, a bit of a conversation historically about another clan, a group called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, who invade and take the throne for a, a while. Maybe that's our connection. Maybe the pharaoh who worked with Joseph, maybe his grandson never saw the throne. I don't know, I haven't tried the Egyptian history well enough to, to lay out all the dots and connect them. But at some point or another, whether it's further down that same pharaonic fer- dynasty, or if it's because a new group comes into power, you now have this moment where they don't know Joseph anymore. They don't know what Joseph did for Egypt, so they don't care about Joseph's family as being friend but they start to see them as foe. And at that point, the slavery happens. Ten years in? Two hundred years in? Exodus never answers that question, so we're, we're left to just leave it open, and that's okay. But regardless, they become enslaved under this new pharaoh. And the Lord is going to raise up Moses as his spokesperson to go and to redeem them, to rescue them out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord's going to do it with ten miracles. I know we often call them the ten plagues, and that word is used in Scripture, but so is the word miracle. These are ten mighty acts of God. And you can probably name most of them. But it's that last one. It is the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, that finally gets Pharaoh to relent. Pharaoh never truly repents. I mean, he shows, he says the right words, it feels like sometimes, but he hardened his heart the first five plagues. He wouldn't let Israel go. And even with the sixth through the tenth plagues, he just goes back on his word immediately. So it's hard to see any of it as a genuine repentance from him. Although, in fairness, when we repent, we do, we go back too. So mourning the death of his son, Pharaoh throws the Israelites out of Egypt. But not long after they've left, Pharaoh changes his mind again. And he gathers his army, and he chases after them. And they're pinned up against the Red Sea, and they see Pharaoh coming. That's where the text begins. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Such a wonderful close to that paragraph. But not an easy paragraph. Pharaoh has come. The Israelites see him and they are, well, they fear greatly. What does that show? 
that shows a lack of faith, a lack of trust. And Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, does command us to not be afraid of anything except God himself. The reason? Fear is trust, and trust is faith. Trust literally is faith, by the way. The, the word faith in English comes to us out of Latin from the Latin word fides, which is their word for trust. To have faith in God means I trust in God. I trust in his promises. Fear is also a trust. It's not identical. It's not the same thing. But think about it. They fear Pharaoh. Why? They trust he can hurt them. They trust he can kill them. They trust his army is stronger than they are. See that? So by fearing Pharaoh, they aren't trusting God. Now, it's okay as a Christian today to be in a terrible situation where death is upon you. I say that simply because if the world kills us, we're with Jesus. And that's kind of the point. The world cannot strip you from the Father's hand. It doesn't have the ability, it doesn't have the power, it doesn't have the authority to do so. You belong to Christ. You are his. So if you're in that deadly situation, we don't need to fear. Christ is with us. Christ will raise us. Death is not the enemy in that regard. I'm not saying death is not the enemy. Scripture very clearly says that. Death is not intended to have been part of God's creation. It is the result of sin. And it is the last enemy to be defeated by Christ. But that moment of our death, it's not to be avoided. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Trust in God. He is for us. They do cry out to God, and this is good. But then they go to the one they know to be God's representative among them, and they, they complain heavily. They grumble. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? You have taken us away to die in the wilderness. We were going to die there. Why die out here? What's the point? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? God has just saved them. God has rescued them, redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and they see it as death. God has rescued them from the world, and they still want to cling to the world that they know. All of those statements are true also for us now. Christ has rescued us from the world, and yet our sinful nature still wants to cling to it. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They never actually said that, scripturally speaking. I mean, it's easy to imagine that they had many more conversations with Moses over that span of the ten plagues than are recorded in the Bible. The closest biblical quote you'll get to is chapter 5, verse 21, but it's not direct, not, not word for word for what they're talking about here. But let's look at their next statement. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Is this true? 
From the world's perspective, yes. This is true even to this day. The world around us primarily believes there is nothing after death. It's just non-existence at that point. So, live as slaves or don't exist anymore. That's the choice. There are a few who would choose don't exist anymore, but most would probably take the idea of living because they want to keep living. And yet, We also see the answer to this as a no. The Old Testament often foreshadows, it points to something better, greater, in the New Testament, in Christ. And this rescue is a foreshadowing. It is a good thing. It is the mighty work of God. And yet, it is meant to point us forward, well, to Good Friday and Easter, what Christ has done to rescue us. So they were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to sin God rescued them from that slavery. God rescued us from our slavery to sin and death. So when we use that foreshadowing picture and put that back in, it would have been better for us to serve sin than to die for our faith. No. Emphatically, no. No, it wouldn't. Because that is what brings our death, is our sin. We've been set free. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. That's from Romans chapter 6. So, it's a tough paragraph here. Uh, These people are grumbling, they're complaining, and yet they get this wonderful response. Moses doesn't really even tackle any of this. He doesn't go after their complaints. But he encourages them. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. Fear not. That's a very common biblical instruction. Why? Because God is for you. Stand firm. Don't tremble. Don't let your knees wobble in fear. Don't cower. Don't collapse to the ground. Stand firm. Why? God will save you. Just watch. We'll come back to that in the next verse. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Why? Because they're about to all be killed. Every one of them. They're gone. They don't live another day. This is God. This is his power. And in this moment, this is his judgment. Against a wicked people who sought to harm his own. This is war between God and the devil, between life and death. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That last word could also be translated still. You have only to be still. You don't have to fight. You don't have to speak. You don't have to scream. You don't have to shout. You don't have to do any of those kinds of things. You don't do anything. God saves. This also is a picture of our faith in the New Testament as Ephesians 2 lays it out quite cleanly, clearly, that we were dead in our trespasses. And dead men can't save themselves. It is a gift. It is the grace of God that we are saved. We don't have to do anything to earn salvation. We were dead, and Christ raised us from that death. 
that death of unbelief, that enslavement to sin. And now, now that we are alive, now that we've been brought into his family, into his kingdom, he does give us stuff to do, the works of his kingdom, the work of the family, to love our neighbor. Be silent. Be still. On that day, they need not do anything. The Lord is for them. He will defeat the enemy. And he is just going to simply give them a way out. Which is the part of the story probably best known to most people, and we continue with it now. Verse 15, Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We don't actually see Moses cry to God here in the text, but by his response, we know that he did. So Moses takes this to the Lord in prayer, perhaps a complaining kind of prayer. He does do that on occasion. And Yahweh's response is, part the Red Sea. Now, we don't know exactly where on the Red Sea it is that they're going to cross over, but the Red Sea is, well, it's a big body of water. Even today, if you look at a map, probably the narrowest point is going to be close to where the Red Sea comes out as it empties into the Gulf of Aden and then to the Arabian Sea. And even at that, you're looking at a 20-mile stretch. So if they crossed anywhere else, it's more than 20 miles. 20 miles is a good day's walk and in many ways. But... God is providing. I, I say that, I bring that picture of the Red Sea out like that because it shows even more of God's power, doesn't it? To think not just of, of a small body of water being parted, but a massive body of water. And they get to pass on dry ground. Imagine if they had any carts with them to carry their, their children, to carry their possessions. They wouldn't have had many possessions, but they may have had some. Have you tried to move a cart over mud? Especially over a, a river basin that is going to be completely soaked? Those wheels are going to get caught. They're going to sink. It's not going to be easy to move. They're, they're not going to move. Same goes for the livestock. Their hooves get stuck. They're going to have a difficult time. It's going to be a giant mess. But that's not here. That they may go through the sea on dry ground. So thoroughly will God part the sea. He will even remove the water from the soil underneath. Drying it up so it becomes like a path. That they can cross it. And they may cross it easily. God is going to get glory over Egypt, over Pharaoh, over his host, that is his army, 
his chariots, which are essentially weapons. I mean, chariots instilled fear in the Israelites for centuries to come, even after this. And then they will know that God is God. That's the point in chapter 7, verse 5 about the plagues, too. The ten plagues will prove to the Egyptians that there is but one God. And some of the Egyptians left with the Israelites. Don't know how many. Never given a number for that. But some. Glory. The thing to be known for, seen for. A reason for people to look to him. As they realize that he is God. And there is no other. Verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. The angel of God. In the Old Testament, the The angel of God is often a reference to Jesus Christ himself. Could this be? It could be. It would certainly make sense that God is with them. God is fighting for them, as Moses just told them. Jesus is God. And so as Jesus moves, the pillar moves. The pillar is made up of fire and cloud, both of which are Old Testament appearances of God in other accounts. Uh, may well be a good connection point here. This could be Christ himself moving to protect his people. Either way, whether this is Jesus or if it is an angel, God protects his people. He puts the pillar that would have been a terrifying sight in between the two armies, between Israel and Egypt. I mean, picture that pillar, by the way. The only pillar of cloud that we can think of today, typically, is a tornado that stretches from the heavens above to the earth below. We don't know of a pillar of fire, but it is, it is potential from the reading of Exodus that it is one pillar, not that the pillar of cloud disappears at night and a pillar of fire replaces it, but it could, it, it's a pillar of fire and cloud. So in the daytime, when it's light, When it's bright outside, you don't really see the fire as much. You focus on the cloud. But in the nighttime, when it's dark, you can't see the cloud anymore. It's dark. But instead, you can clearly see the the light given off by the fire inside. So I I do tend to visualize this as a a pillar that is both. Anyway, imagine that kind of uh, a picture. A pillar like a tornado with fire throughout it. Think the Egyptian army wants to move? They probably want to turn around and leave. But then they have the wrath of Pharaoh to contend with if they retreat. So they just, they stay put. They don't move. And then Moses does what God commanded. Verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, 
Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. So we see the battle begin. Moses does what God has commanded, stretches his hand over the sea, and Yahweh parts it. A strong east wind all night. Dry land. Incredible miracle. Incredible display of God's power, even at this. I would say nonviolent, but it is kind of a violent miracle, isn't it? Maybe not violent against man, but violent against creation to so physically alter, change it by force, right? By a wind, but incredible nonetheless. And God's people cross on dry ground through the night. Again, if it's a, if it's about twenty miles, walking four miles an hour is a pretty solid pace would be hard to do with kids and livestock so maybe three miles an hour six or seven hours to cross that red sea if it's a wider part longer and the last part of the miracle is god gave them some more haste that's not mentioned in scripture though so it's hard to hard to stick that in for us but in the meantime the pillar of fire and cloud must have moved because Pharaoh's army approaches. And as they do, Yahweh acts. He changes the miracle. He does something, whether he allows the, the seabed to become wet again so that their, their chariot wheels get stuck, or if he simply does something of his own. You know, he could turn their wheels into squares if he wanted to. It doesn't say anything about that. Don't take that as, as the answer, but... He does something to impact it so their chariots cannot move well, if at all. And they suddenly realize this. They realize it. They say it. Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Let us flee. God has rescued his people. But this isn't the end. Verse 26. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So if you have this picture in your mind of a sea parted with a giant wall of water on each side, now you've got the army of Pharaoh in the midst of that sea, in between the walls, and then just break the walls. Let the water come crashing down on them, and that's what happened. And they're drowned in the sea. This is part of the miracle of God, and it is his just judgment. They were trying to kill. They were trying to destroy 
his people and he fought for them. He rescued them, he redeemed them, he saved them from this attack, for they are his. Of all of Pharaoh's army, not one of them remained. The only thing that language leaves open is, what about Pharaoh himself? Was Pharaoh a good general for his troops? Did he lead them into battle? In which case, he's dead too. Or was he more of a cowardice of a general standing back on the other side of the sea and sending his troops in front of him as you often see portrayed in movies today? There have been both kinds in history. So did Pharaoh survive this or not is not a question that the book of Exodus seems to address. But it is fair to say that at the time, the Egyptians had been the world's greatest power. And now, that entire power has been snuffed out. Not anymore. They're done. God has broken Egypt. Because he is God. And he has rescued, he has redeemed, he has saved his people. Again, see the parallel, see the foreshadowing to the New Testament, that Christ has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. He has broken our enemy. The greatest power in the world, other than God. He's broken it. And he's done it for us, to save us, to redeem us. So that's going to definitely be the connection to John 20, the gospel, that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that Christ has defeated even death, the enemy for us. Verse 30, Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Salvation. They see the enemy destroyed just as Moses told them back in verses 13 and 14. They saw God's power, and they feared Yahweh, and they believed in him. See two different kinds of trust there, fear and faith, both of them, both good in regards to our our relationship with God. And then they also believed in Moses. That is that he, again, is God's servant. He's there to help them, not harm them, They'll believe that momentarily. They'll go back to grumbling against him soon enough. But for now, we get the beginning of the victory celebration song in chapter 15. We only get verse 1 today. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What do we do as Christians? We praise God. We praise him for his greatness. We praise him for his salvation. For he has triumphed gloriously. He has destroyed our enemy. He has destroyed even death for us. He destroyed sin on the cross. Even destroyed Satan by his death on the cross because he took away all of Satan's power in that moment. His power was to hold our sin against us. And by his empty tomb, by his resurrection, he has conquered even death. Let us rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. As we look to continue then with our epistle reading, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 
This is known as the resurrection chapter among many Christians because it is, well, so intimately focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Corinthian Christians had come to a point of really many of them doubting whether Jesus had actually risen from the grave, from the dead. And we don't get to that point in the text where Paul really refutes that, teaching them. And he says some of the words here in the text we'll have today, like, you believed in vain is one example, but he, he very much so spells that out in the next couple of paragraphs. So if you want to see that argumentation, go ahead and read onward after you've finished listening to the podcast today. Uh, it's, again, a great chapter that shows the the sheer value, the sheer importance of the resurrection to the Christian. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we are not left to shame. Now, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And this is broken up into a very short paragraph and then a longer one. So we'll do verses 1 and 2 first. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I would remind you, brothers. How often do you need reminders? I mean, think about the the simple things in life, right? Uh, the reminder to wake up, so you set an alarm clock. And how many alarms do you set? I know for myself on Sunday morning to make sure I don't oversleep church, I usually set three alarms just to make sure they get me. Uh, usually the second one works, and I don't need the third one, but it's there just in case. We have reminders on our phones, we have notifications popping up to remind us to do things, our calendar... Uh, reminders all over the place. The notes we leave on our refrigerator so we'll see them. But how much more true is this of our faith? That we need reminders. We are constantly engaged in a battle against sin, death, and the devil. A battle that Christ has already won for us and we need to be reminded of that daily. But we fight against temptation every day. We wrestle with doubt every day. We struggle to pray every day and to read God's word every day. And and so we need these reminders. Now we could talk about reminders. It's a great way to have a family conversation or family devotion around a text like this. How can we have regular reminders in our lives? Now you could sign up for email devotions from somebody like Lutheran Hour Ministries or the Lutheran Church Charities. They do those. Uh, You can get a devotional resource like Portals of Prayer that has a devotion in it every day and leave it somewhere that you go daily. If you have a solid routine that you always sit at your table in your kitchen and eat breakfast in the morning and read your newspaper, put the Portals of Prayer right there. Before you open your newspaper, read the Portals of Prayer for the day. Read your Bible for the day. Put a Bible right there. Um, You know, wherever that spot may be that you gather. Have hymns playing in your car as you go to work instead of whatever the news is on the morning radio or the 
the songs that you would otherwise listen to, perhaps, or a podcast, um, you know, the daily reminder of God's word that could be given and shared to you. These are just some examples, some thoughts, but most of all, the reminder, and really more than just a reminder, the actual act of the forgiveness of sins given to you by Christ himself through word and sacrament. And so as we just had a text on the, the feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, the Lord's Supper. We need that every time we can get it. I sin much, so I need forgiveness much. I struggle much, so I need encouragement much. And that's what the church is for. The church is in the physical building. Um, we are... The, the building exists so that you have a place of promise where you know you can go to hear God's forgiveness, to receive God's forgiveness that Christ won for you on the cross. And we need that reminder as often as we can get it. And it is both a reminder and also a reality. I don't know that the alarm clock illustration really works there necessarily, but as I'm thinking about it, 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 it kind of works. The alarm goes off in the morning, and when it goes off, I'm awake. I may not want to be awake, but I'm awake. Um, I may choose to go back to sleep after I shut it up, but it woke me up. It did its job. The absolution and the Lord's Supper do their job. They forgive sins, as Christ has given them to do, as Christ has promised that they would. He has given them to you for your benefit. Now, what is Paul reminding the Corinthian brothers of? He's reminding them of the faith that they have had taught to them, and that they would not waver from that faith, that they would stand firm in it. And so you can see the progression here. Paul preached to them a gospel, a good news, a very specific message, and we'll get it in verse 3 and 4, I guess, and 5. Sorry, it keeps going. Paul preached the message of the gospel. They received it, so they heard it, and their hearts rejoiced as the Holy Spirit created faith in them. In which you stand, so you've received the gospel, now you stand in that gospel. Uh, the here I stand kind of quote that's so famous of Martin Luther, although we're not sure if he actually said those words or not, but it sounds really good and it makes a perfect fitting sense. Here I stand, I can do no other by which you are being saved. Not yourself, but the gospel. What Christ has done for you is what saves you, if you hold fast. I should have looked up that Greek word too. Let's look that up real quick. Which Greek word is that? So this is 1 Corinthians 15, it's verse 2. And the Greek word, hold fast, in the, the verse... Kataketa. Kataketa. I'm just wondering, as we think of the book of Genesis, if that's the same word used in chapter 2, verse 24, where a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Did the Septuagint translators pick up on that idea. 
They did not. They went with the Greek word to be joined to, to cleave, to adhere closely to, which is pros kalamai. So, not there. In English, you see it. Hold fast, hold fast. Um, cling, though. I mean, this is an easy thing to picture, right? If you've ever had children, you know how clingy they can be, and they just they latch on, and they will not let go of your leg or whatever it is that they've taken hold of. Uh, the little baby taking a chunk of your hair is a not-so-pleasant one. But this is the picture, then, that we can use for our faith. Hold fast, cling, don't let go. Grab hold of what has been given to you, what has been shared with you, and and remain there. Stand in that faith. Even though the tide may rise against you in this culture, even though the devil may put tempting things just beyond your reach, if you would just leave that spot where you stand, you could have this wonderful life here. And then when you leave that circle, you don't remember the salvation that you had in Christ. The reminder is, is missing from your life when you have left the church. And so you can see some of these things pictured here by Paul. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. So vain, worthless vanity, um, if, it, if it was for nothing. And again, the, the Corinthian Christians here are teetering on this. They are doubting the resurrection. That's the reason for this chapter being written to them. And of course, it's a wonderful chapter for us to still have, so we're thankful Paul wrote it. Let's continue uh, with the rest of the text, verses 3 through 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we think of verse 3, Paul again, going back to what he said in verse 1, the gospel, I preached to you. So now he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Note the priority. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not second or third or fourth or fifteenth. It's first. There is nothing more important in this life, in this world, than the gospel. And how we lose sight of that each and every day. Stunning. This is the thing that matters. If you lose everything, you get fired from your job, you lose your house to foreclosure, your body becomes brittle and frail, and you come to the point of death. 
if you still have the gospel, you still have paradise. That cannot be taken away from you. The feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, still awaits you. And that's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing that we have from our Lord and our Savior, from Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we necessarily wish to have all that bad stuff happen to us, but, again, first importance. The other things don't really matter. Gets us to the very simple instructions of Jesus in the New Testament that life is about two things, love God, love your neighbor. I don't have to have a home to love my neighbor. But if I have a home, that does give me additional ways that I can love my neighbor, right? I can bring them into my house. I can serve them dinner, showing hospitality. I can give the neighbor who's lost their home a place to live and to stay, whether it's temporarily or if we're just going to merge our households together and become a larger family. And you don't see much of that in American culture, uh, but it has been a part of cultures around the world for a very long time, um, that idea of hospitality. That's just one example. First importance, what I also received. Now, Paul is going to list off four things that are in this reception of his. Here's the gospel that he proclaims and preaches to them. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, that's second. Third, he was raised on the third day. And fourth, in verse five, he appeared. So, died, buried, raised, appeared. Those four words are what Paul is focusing on here. So two of them, he very specifically pairs with the idea that it's in accordance with the scriptures, and indeed it is. Jesus himself predicted it several times, and his disciples never believed him, at least not until after it had happened. And, and at that, they only believed him after the resurrection had happened, and they were still puzzled by it. But it all comes together at Pentecost for them. Anyway, Christ died for our sins. What a beautiful picture. And that's Good Friday of Holy Week as you gather together with your church again. So you've celebrated the Old Testament text in a sense with Maundy Thursday. You've celebrated the epistle text here um, as we think of both Good Friday with that verse but also of the whole of it with Easter as well. Uh, Because again, It doesn't stop with his death and his burial, which are the first two things. He died that we would be forgiven, then he was buried, and he was raised. All of that's prophesied in the Old Testament. All of it's said by Jesus himself in the New Testament, and it all comes to be. His death forgives our sins, his resurrection gives us life. And then he appeared. Paul's going to spend several verses unpacking these appearances for us. What is the purpose of noting that Jesus appeared? Now it presents to us eyewitnesses. If you don't believe, if you're doubting, if you're struggling to, to think that Christ could have possibly risen from the dead, here are some people you can go and talk to. Jewish culture at the time held that something that was testified to by two or three witnesses was to be taken as credible. This is why when they were trying Jesus on Good Friday, they were trying to find witnesses that would testify against him, and they couldn't find witnesses that agreed. 
That's an important detail. So Caiaphas eventually, in questioning Jesus, gets him to say that he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who will be seated at the right hand of power, and then that's enough for them to accuse him together of blasphemy. They've all heard it, so now they have their witnesses. What more testimony do we need? It wasn't blasphemy, it was truth, but they had their witnesses. So the resurrection appearances, the post-Easter appearances of Jesus, are for the purpose of the faith of his church, that they would be able to receive this testimony, that their faith would be strengthened, and that they would go out and share that gospel, that good news. Did he need to appear? It's an interesting question. I guess in a sense, yes, he did, because he promised he would. And so he had to keep his promise, right? He tells them, and we're going to cover this in the gospel account, but he tells them that after he's risen from the dead, he will appear to them in Galilee. He will go before them into Galilee and there to meet with him there. So, yeah, there, there has at least a need for some appearance because, because of something like that. Now, who does he appear to? And Paul's going to give us a list. He starts with Cephas. This is Peter, Simon Peter, um, the rock. That's an interesting pop cultural connection. Anyway, um, the actor or former wrestler, The Rock. Cephas is Aramaic for rock, whereas Petros is Greek for rock, and that's why we normally call him Peter. Um, but both names refer to the same. So he appears to Peter, then he appears to the Twelve, then he appears to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? Again, the, the Corinthians are doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. So you have trouble believing this? He appeared to all of these people, and most of them are still living. Go ask. Hear it from the eyewitnesses yourselves, that you may be strengthened in your faith, that you may believe. Now, of course, for us, we cannot do that. Um, we have the testimony of Scripture. And the apostles that wrote it down for us, these men did see it, and they did write it down, and we do have that. We don't get to go and ask them anymore. But we also have the words of Jesus to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's our Lord speaking a blessing for us. Some have fallen asleep is a reference, the New Testament reference to death. Um, so some of those 500 brothers, by the point Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, a couple of decades later, some of them have died, but not all of them. In fact, not even the majority of them. Most of them are still alive, according to Paul. Verse 7, he appeared to James. This is James, the, the blood brother of Jesus, uh, the one born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus, um, one of those brothers who does not believe the gospel, who doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah until, probably until this, right? We see the, we see the holy family, if you still want to call them that, um, in the gospels, not believing. 
And Jesus is in a house, and a crowd has gathered around him, and he's teaching, and he's healing, he's doing all kinds of the stuff that he's come to do. And his mother and his brothers show up to take him away because they think he's gone crazy. They want to get him out of there. And Jesus looks around to the crowd, and he says that they are his mother and his brothers and his sisters. All those who do the will of his Father in heaven. That's James, the brother of Jesus. And so here, we now see that Jesus has appeared to him after he was crucified, after he has been raised from the dead, and then he appears to the apostles. Again. That James, that brother, is going to go on to be the head of the church in Jerusalem for probably a couple of decades. It would be at this time. So there's another reference that they can go and ask. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born. Uh, it's the, the Greek word there is in reference to a miscarriage. Um, a baby that comes when it's not supposed to come. It's the only time that word, to my knowledge, is used in the entirety of Scripture. Um, so it's a little hard to know what to do with it because of that. I am the least of the apostles, and we know he's referencing there because he explains it, because I persecuted the church of God. I've heard many say that, that here Paul was wishing he had never lived as his reference point. I'm not sure that I want to go that far. Because even though, yes, he persecuted the church, I mean... How many people believe in the gospel because of the work that Paul has done? I don't see Paul as someone who would want to undo that work. So, again, this miscarriage word, the one untimely born phrase, is a little hard for us to wrap our minds around exactly what it is Paul's getting at. In its context, again, we know that Paul is lessening himself. And so maybe that applies to a lowering of, a humbling of himself. That he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve to be here because he knew how evil he was. He's the least. He's not worthy to be called this because he did these terrible things. And the New Testament even recorded some of those things. We can see it in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 7 is where he first appears. And he appears because they're stoning Stephen to death and they all lay their cloaks at Paul's feet as essentially the witness to the event. And we learn that he approved of this as they killed Stephen, the first Christian martyr of the church. And then in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 8, we see him persecuting the church. And, and the church is scattered because of Paul's great persecution that he's bringing as he goes from house to house seeking Christians that he may arrest them and bring them before the council. Paul knows the wickedness that he's committed. And in a way, we can relate to this. We know the depths of our own sin. I don't know the depths of your sin, but I know mine. You don't know the depths of my sin, but you know yours. We know how bad we are. We know the, the, the wretched things that we've said. 
the the wicked things that we thought and not actually carried through. Praise God for that, but it was still sin to think it. We know how bad we are. And so we can we can relate to what Paul is thinking here, even if we haven't persecuted the church in the way he's describing of himself. We all deserve death. None of us deserve life. But yet that is the greatness of God's gift. And it's just that. It's a gift. We are all unworthy, but Christ has given it to us anyway. He has declared that we are worthy. And again, it's not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. How do you know your worth? God himself was willing to die for you. That says something. That gives you worth in this world and in this life. Even if the rest of the world would despise you, Christ is for you. Verse 10. I am what I am. A broken sinner, forgiven, redeemed, baptized, saved, sent. You are these things by the grace of God. His grace toward us, not in vain. Paul can certainly say that, right? It's a twofold reference again. It refers to the, the faith that Paul has. God's grace toward him was not in vain. Paul is saved. But it's also, beyond that, it refers to the salvation um, that has found its way to so many new churches in, in the course of Paul's missionary journeys throughout Galatia and Asia and Mysia and Macedonia and, and Achaia as he travels again and again and again and he plants churches and he goes and he visits those churches and he encourages them again and again. The grace given to Paul multiplied. Just like the fruit in the parable, as Jesus talks about, which parable is that? The parable of the sower. Maybe Matthew 13, uh, where Jesus says that the, the seed that fell on good soil, it grew, it produced 30-fold, a 60-fold, a 100-fold. It would be incredible if we could all produce 30-fold. Imagine if every Christian shared the gospel with 30 people. What impact that would have on this world. Paul did significantly more than that, and we can rejoice at that as the church. Um, you know, we don't have to ask this question really, but where would the church be otherwise? This is how the Lord chose to work. Many of us are Christians today as offshoots of churches, if we were to go back historically far enough, that Paul planted. Because those Christians also shared the gospel, and then the Christians they shared the gospel with shared the gospel, and so forth. It makes its way down through the generations, through the families, through the churches. Again, Paul working harder um, in verse 10 there than the rest of the apostles. We might see that as a brag, um, but it's a boast in the Lord. As he says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul endured much for the sake of sharing the gospel. 
as he went on those missionary journeys, he was chased out of towns. He was stoned, they thought to death, but he survived. Shipwrecked a couple of times. I mean, the things that happened to him, the diligence of going and traveling to share the gospel, it's a thing we thank God for. We don't want to lift Paul up as being worthy of our worship. No one is but God himself. But we can thank God for the gift of the apostle. Perhaps the the greatest evangelist the church has known. Because, verse 11, whether it was I or they, it doesn't matter who preached this good news to you. We preached it to you and you believed it. Stand firm, hold fast, cling to that faith, and you will live, not just now, but forevermore. At this point, our podcast has already reached the one-hour mark, and we haven't even touched the gospel, but we have touched the gospel, right? We've talked about Christ risen from the dead, the good news that we are saved from sin, death, and the devil. But let us turn now to the gospel account, the account of the day of his resurrection from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The first day of the week in the Jewish calendar is Sunday. So it is really sundown on Saturday evening through sundown on Sunday evening. With the Saturday being the last day, the Sabbath rest of God's people. So Jesus has had the perfect Sabbath rest in the tomb. And now on Sunday, it's still early, the sun has not fully risen. Right, it's still dark. Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb. John's gospel doesn't cover a why. It just says she went. So we won't focus on that why here. And when she gets there, the stone has been removed. Stunned, she goes to report it to the disciples, what she has learned, what she has found. And she finds Simon Peter. And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John's way throughout the gospel to refer to himself. And she tells them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Notice we, plural. So even though John hadn't mentioned other women present with her, we do know from the other gospel accounts this to be true. John just makes a we statement here to cover it. Let's take another focus on the the one whom Jesus loved comment before we move on, though. The focus of John's gospel 
is that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The focus of the Gospel of John is not John. John does not want the reader to get caught up in John. John wants you to get caught up in Jesus. And so he doesn't point to himself. His focus is on Christ. And I think that is an intentional move. That's what I would suggest to you. Humility could be another one that we talk about, certainly. But the focus to stay on Jesus. So Peter went out with the other disciple. John outran him. We don't have to read anything into that. Um, It's not that Peter's an old man and John's still a kid, although John is still young. Peter's probably not that old either. Old enough to be married, young enough to live at least another 40 years, and even at that, he doesn't die of old age. He dies by getting executed, crucified upside down. So it wouldn't be surprising if Peter's in his 20s and John's a teenager, but that's not the point here. John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. Peter comes and he goes into the tomb. They see the cloth lying there that Jesus had been wrapped in, his burial garb, if you want to call it that, as well as the cloth that had been on his face. For some reason, that one's lying separately, folded up by itself. I don't know that there's anything we need to read into that as a statement of of purpose. There are some Christians today who believe we have this face cloth. They call it the Shroud of Turin, T-U-R-I-N. I don't know. I, I'll leave it at that. I don't know. Could it be real? I think it could be. But I don't know that we can know it for sure with any certainty. And even if it is... It needs to be kept in check. It's cool. If it's the real thing, fantastic. Thanks be to God that we have it. It's a piece of evidence. It's nothing more than that. It is not a relic to be worshipped. It is an apologetic, is is a defense of our faith. Again, some people really truly believe it. Uh, They will have even done at this point facial reconstruction from the the cloth itself, what what they found on it to see what the face would have looked like of the man who had worn it. Is that a picture of Jesus? I don't know. But again, notice how easy it is to get distracted and to not be focused on what the text focuses on. Which is what? Tomb's empty. He's not here. He's risen. He must rise from the dead, but the disciples don't yet get this. Verse 9, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What scripture is John referring to? It could be something from the Old Testament. Without faith in Christ, you cannot correctly read the Old Testament. I'm sorry to all the Jewish people out there who don't believe in Jesus, you are not correctly reading the Old Testament because we learn from Luke that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the key to being able to understand the Old Testament. And so if you don't have the key, you can't get it. And that's where the disciples have been. Even the disciples who had Jesus walking with them, teaching them always, 
for three years. Without that faith in Christ, they didn't see it yet. And so after the resurrection, and especially after Pentecost, the disciples are reading through the Old Testament with entirely new eyes. And Paul can then take the Old Testament scriptures that he finds in the various Jewish synagogues and his missionary trips, and he can show people how those things point to Jesus. And so we have a text like Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's King David speaking. And yet, when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, his Pentecost sermon, He's going to connect that to Jesus. So the New Testament very clearly does. He didn't see that as Jesus before, but now he does. As yet, he did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, but now he gets it. Or at least later he would get it, whether he gets it in this moment or not yet still. But Another thought here is, with John writing so much later, John's gospel is probably written around the year 90, ish, A.D., 92, 93, 95, something like that. I can't pinpoint a year for you, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're written in the 50s, nearly four decades prior. When John says that they did not understand the Scripture, could he be referring to the other Gospels here? That those are Scripture. As they most likely were considered to be by by that time, by the church. They've been reading those Gospels together for generations. Two generations. In which case, several passion predictions, right? Three times Jesus told his disciples he would die and rise again. They didn't get it. They didn't like it. They would always focus on the death part, never the resurrection part. And not once in those predictions do the disciples look at Jesus and say, what do you mean you're going to rise from the dead? Huh? They get so hung up on the first part that he would die. So even here, they go back to their homes, not really sure what's going on. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Peter and John leave, but Mary remains. 
And as she looks in, she sees two angels dressed in a white, probably bright, radiant garment. And they ask her why she's sad. That's a fair question. Because, again, they don't understand yet. There's no reason to be sad. Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead. Death has no more power over you. Sin lost. Satan lost. Death lost. Rejoice. But she doesn't know it yet. She doesn't understand it yet. She still thinks he's dead. She wants to find the body so that she can tend to Jesus' body. So she asks them where they have taken her. And then Jesus is even there, and she asks him the same thing. Where'd you take him? If you have carried him away, tell me where. I will take him away. She would have needed help to do that. She wouldn't have been strong enough by herself, but she would have probably gotten the disciples to help move the body. Why are you weeping? Supposing him to be the gardener. So Jesus conceals himself from her. Why? I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, he's going to reveal himself to her now, so why not immediately? Why Why the momentary wait? John doesn't reveal that to us. She also assumes him to be a gardener, uh, just a man, just a worker in that place. So his appearance to her, what she can see, isn't revealing. It's not bright and radiant. It's not the glorified body of Jesus that we expect and anticipate here that she sees. He conceals that from her because he's God and he has the power to do that, just as God in the Old Testament can appear as a man. As he talks to Abraham at his tent in Genesis 18, I believe it is. So he's doing here. This will happen with the disciples too. They'll see Jesus and not recognize him. Happens on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other disciple. They don't know. Jesus conceals his presence from them for a time before he reveals it. And here he reveals it to her by speaking her name. And that's enough. At that point she recognizes who he is. He calls her by name. I think this is a beautiful picture of Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It's in that moment that he calls her by name that she knows who he is because she is his. He has called us by name. And our names are written in his book of life. Thanks be to God. Jesus said Mary. She responds in Aramaic, Rabboni. We're used to the word rabbi. This is a related word, but from Aramaic rather than, than Greek here. Or Hebrew. But a word that means teacher or master. And she's clinging to him. And he says, do not cling to me. It's not that he doesn't want her to cling to him by faith. That's not what he's saying here. Envision this, right? Mary has just seen Jesus again, and he's alive. Can you picture her, like, running up and grabbing him, holding him, 
clinging to him, falling down at his feet and holding his legs so he can't go anywhere, do not cling to me. He still has work to do, and so does she. He's going to give her something to do. Go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so she does. That she has seen the Lord. And she gives witness to what he has told her. There is something to be said for that. Uh, in the ancient world, and in, in this culture, the idea of bearing witness was a man's role. If there were a court, a trial of some kind, uh, a woman's testimony wouldn't hold in court. It wouldn't be used. And so this is quite telling that the disciples put those first words of the resurrection in the mouth of women. It's not what you would have done if you were making up a story. But it is what you would do if you were simply reporting what's true. This is what God chose to do. She gets to be the first one. And we can thank God for that. And for all those who have witnessed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the 2,000 years since, thanks be to God. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, hallelujah. And because he lives, you live. Death has no power over us. So let us celebrate the resurrection. Let us celebrate Easter every day. Come.